Welcome to Church and Culture. I'm D.L. Hudson. A very special guest today, Dr. Bill Sessions, Regents Professor of English Emeritus at Georgia State University, is soon to publish the authorized biography of the Catholic writer, Flannery O'Connor. Dr. Sessions, we're going to call him Bill, though, for the sake of the interview, was a close friend of Flannery O'Connor. He went to Lourdes with Flannery and her mother on her trip while looking for a answer to her illness. Bill, welcome to Church and Culture. Thank you. I should note that the prayer journal of Flannery O'Connor, which you published in November with Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, which had never been published before, and you discovered and put it out there for all of us, is now in its third printing. And, and perhaps fourth. <laughs> they just really, uh, the, the people at the uh, publishing house really underestimated the power of that book. Why do you think it's selling so so well, Bill? The same reason that when I had those papers uh, brought to me from the, when the estate asked me to write the biography, uh, and I had them brought to me, I began just going through the papers that had never been printed or published or anything. And as soon as I saw this prayer journal, uh, I realized it had something very uh, definite about it, as well as very uh, original and and uh, unusual. Did you know it was? Well, did you, had Flannery ever mentioned it to you? Did you even know it was there? No, Ma, and I don't think the family knew it either. And I don't know. It's strange thing for me is the 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 matriarch of O'Connor studies was, of course, Sally Fitzgerald, and she was a wonderful woman who did a great deal for getting Fitzgerald's work out there, and nowhere in her work is it mentioned in any way. So when I went through that mass of papers which they brought to me, uh, it was there, and uh, in that sense I discovered it as soon as I saw it because I saw the value of it, and uh, uh, and that has... Uh, that. That, I think, has been the, um, this, she was 21 years old, she was writing a journal that, a diary of prayers, that really uh, was helping her to focus on her own life and on her own uh, uh, world and renewing it, in a sense, uh, but doing it in uh, language, syntax, uh, and that's something that I found very interesting. When uh, Marilyn Robinson wrote the New York Times book review, she said, uh, Flannery O'Connor gives us as much in lessons in creativity <clears throat> as she does in lessons in prayer. And uh, I think that is really a mar- marvelous passage. She says, simile by simile, that's the <laughs> word from uh, uh, from uh, Marilyn Robinson. And there are some terrific similes. Particularly and she's always, uh, she's always showing her sense of humor, even about spiritual matters. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And I think everything Flannery saw had to be seen in an ironic or even paradoxical uh, uh, outlook. That is a kind of um, dialectic of points of view and everything. Why, why was there so much irony in her, in her, both her attitude, her conversation? Why was there that wry kind of ironic sense of humor? Because she saw life that way. <laughs> <laughs> Did she see it from an early age that way? Oh, yeah. She grew up in Savannah. <laughs> well, okay. Well, you'll, for our non-Savannah listeners, uh, you're going to need to explain why growing up in Savannah made Flannery O'Connor that way. Well, it's like any – these are old Southern cultures, and she was, uh, in a sense, she'd also come from Milledgeville, and her background was Irish, and it was also Catholic. And uh, this was not out of place at all in Savannah. Uh, but it was like New Orleans or places like our Charleston, where I grew up in that area. And uh, you have centuries that have already begun. All of a sudden, you're coming into new life, uh, a whole uh, the modern American world kind of thing, played against that life. And uh, it gets to be ironic, to, uh, to say the least. And uh, you couldn't live in the South without seeing paradox, not least in the segregation and the uh, the, the terrible world that, uh, that 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 brought forth, and and uh, you have to remember, I, I always point out to people, <clears throat> Flannery went to school at a Catholic school right near uh, Sacred Heart Parish in Atlanta, downtown Atlanta, and uh, so, uh, but right near her, a few blocks away, was Ebenezer Baptist Church, and Martin Luther King Jr. grew up right next door there, so they were in proximity. 
And they they were were they approximate contemporaries or was she a little older? No, no, no. She's older, right? But she's older only by not even five years, I don't think. And uh, but they they shared the same world, and uh, uh, and and, it, and the same world included, for example, uh, when Gone with the Wind was uh, premiered, it came uh, Scarlett O'Hara and Clark Gable and uh, Olivia De Havilland all came to Atlanta. And uh, they couldn't bring Hattie McDaniel because she was black, but they all came to Atlanta, and Martin Luther King sang in a boys' chorus uh, for them. Flannery, I think, that had to be uh, 1939, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Flannery was living not too far from there, uh, and of course, they everybody in Atlanta knew about it, and uh, uh, and they were there were actually connections between uh, Mark. Mitchell's family. Her mother was Catholic, and uh, she was brought up Catholic. And the uh, uh, O'Connors and uh, uh, the Kleins, rather, uh, and uh, that is her mother's family. So there were connections there, and uh, this was not always to Flannery's advantage because everybody was wanting her to write another Gone with the Wind. <laughs> so, in other words, when the Atlanta and I assume Milledgeville crowd and the Savannah crowd realized they had a writer on their hands. Yeah. She would be, they thought it was natural for her to sort of model herself after Margaret Mitchell. Yeah, right, because that was the kind of stories you wrote. And the wonderful thing about uh, Flannery O'Connor's mother's family, the Kleins, is they didn't really understand a lot of them, what was being said. They were very bright people, I don't mean that. But uh, but her Aunt Mary, for example, uh, when uh, she read in Wise Blood that the that the hero wanted to get the name of a prostitute and he went to the men's room in uh in the bus station uh to get it uh her, her aunt mary said where'd you learn all that where'd you learn all that <laughs> now what you know the two reactions they were very, let me quickly say they were extremely devoted to her and gave time money and everything and my wife who who knew them all in this early period when we were first married said said they really loved that girl you know they they were just devoted to her. I'm talking with uh, Professor Bill Sessions, a professor of English Emeritus at Georgia State, and who has just finished and will soon publish uh, the authorized biography of Flannery O'Connor. And, but he already published to uh, great uh, reviews and lots of sales the prayer journal of Flannery O'Connor, which she wrote in her early 20s while at, uh, in Des Moines, Iowa, at the Ryder School there. You know, the two toughest questions I get when I encourage people to read Flannery O'Connor and they come back to me is first the question of race, which you've already brought up, and then the question of the violence uh, and the grotesque. Uh, and I've had, you know, very good Catholic readers, Protestant readers, you know, those who would embrace the sort of worldview of Flannery O'Connor come back, you know, rather surprised that I would suggest this to them. So, now, I'm sure you heard these uh, many times yourself. How do you handle that, those particular issues? Well, I think one of the things that many had asked is, have said to me, at least, oh, I don't think she's very Catholic. Now we have the prayer journal, which says, which proves us that she's not only Catholic, she's, ex- she's extremely religious, and in fact, so she is so religious that she's crossed all the barriers, and every uh, group from uh, that I, every every religious group that I know of has embraced this book. And these are people are not uh, necessarily Christian or or anything else. And uh, and that is to me, I had nothing to do with that. The book had to do with that. But I think the point is that's one thing is to discover she was she was herself quite religious. Uh, and, and had great devotions of various kinds and so forth. But <clears throat> what she was trying to do was not necessarily get across to an audience, but to get to the truth, and the truth of her character and what she had to see. But I, uh, So first thing I recommend is that you remember that her, she is modeling herself on the great French and uh, English Catholic writers of her early days. That is, not all, uh, she is not... Um, uh, she doesn't model herself on Graham Greene or Evelyn Waugh, but she certainly uses that material. But the great models are Beninos in France, Georges Beninos. Yeah, he wrote Diary of a Country Priest. I think some listeners right. will recognize that. Diary of a Country that. Priest, and also uh, the um, 
Uh, um, the uh, and for Francois Moriac, of course, and then also Claudel. And all, Paul Claudel, yes. Yeah, and then the big figure for her was a man who was at the start of this French uh, revival, who was Leon Bois. And Bois uh, uh, converted. Um, the Maritans. Maritans, the Maritans. Yes. Jacques and Raissa. Yeah. All right, now, when you read those materials, you get the idea that the way you impress a modern audience of God's presence is through the grotesque, through the, not the sweet and beautiful and all of that, that's accepted, but it's through the grotesque and through being in the world and a double uh, dealing with people who are desperate, people who may be this, who have all kinds of things. For example, in the prayer journal, she says, uh, correctly, all good fiction starts from three kinds of uh, of um, uh, uh, three three ways of uh, natural love, unnatural uh, natural love, uh, supernatural love, and perverted. And she, all of this is part of the, the makeup of the way that we reach God and learn to reach God. Very kind of and, da- a kind of Dantean out, outlook. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and you get a variety of characters. I mean, you you don't. Um, she focused primarily on what she felt she knew. Which was rural Georgia, but she did it, it. Basically, it was through Protestant evangelical rural Georgia, and which uh, I, I doubt if, in many ways, I doubt if Flannery ever went to a, a Protestant sermon to hear. I have some proof for that. But the main thing is, she didn't need to. Andrew Lytle, who was the editor of the Swanee Review and one of the great agrarians from Vanderbilt, made the great statement: Flannery O'Connor could walk by a pool hall, take a look, take a sniff, glance around, and walk on, and she had a story. <laughs> she was that intuitive. She was that yes, quick. Yes, and she could, she could see exactly what was and going on. And you, you talk about seeing, I mean, she was a, a wonderful uh, character, a caricaturist That's in right. college. Absolutely. And she was a very good artist. Her self-portrait is quite good, actually. And uh, but the the remarkable thing about Flannery when you met her my, again my wife who was uh, from Greece met her for the first time and Flannery she met anyone that way her eyes seized you and for about a few seconds or seemed a long time would hold you and then she relaxed. <laughs> so she was basically taking you in. That's right. Exactly. Sizing you up. Yeah, right. So she had she had a lot of her mother Regina in her. In her. Oh yeah, oh yeah. They were well. It was a, uh, not an easy time. Regina had had a very difficult life uh, when her husband died of the same disease that killed Flannery, which was lupus, disseminated lupus erythematosus. Um, she um, uh, uh, he died, and he left them no money. And they had to move in with the Klein household in Milledgeville. And this was a very generous family. They were very austere in many ways and very uh, 19th century Southern. But at the same time, they were very generous to the, to the family. And so that's why she grew, how she grew up. And, uh, and, and that's what saved her because, of course, she, she was supposed to have died uh, in about 1955. That is, 1950, she came down with lupus. They gave her five years, and she lived to 14 because she had a very good doctor, among other things. And she lived to 1964, that is. so. Uh, you knew her during all those years? I knew her from 56 on, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, when did she uh, leave New York uh, and Connecticut the last time? Uh, to- 1950, the... the uh, the um, Christmas of 1950, then 51, because she got sick up there, and she had a terrible trip by train. Uh, that is, I know this for a fact. I have it in some place I've written. It'll be in the book. That is, Sally Fitzgerald put her on the train there in Connecticut, and she was had a uh, you know a little uh, tam on a you know beret, and was very cheery and kind of bright. And when her uncle picked her up in the Atlanta rail station, she had shriveled up, and he said, "Did not he said looked like not a shriveled old lady, but a shriveled old man because the disease had just simply uh, reshaped her body." She went through tremendous pain, 
tremendous pain on that trip, but that didn't begin. It was the beginning of uh, 14 years of terrible pain. And uh, I said, uh, I said in my intro, and and again, I'm talking to Dr. Bill Sessions, who uh, is already published the prayer journal of Flannery O'Connor, was a personal friend of hers, uh, and is soon to publish the authorized biography called Stalking Joy. I'm going to ask him about that title in a bit. But you were with Flannery and her mother when they went to Lourdes. Now, right. did, did did she, I mean, I think of her irony, her self-irony as she's going to Lourdes and with her crutches and so forth. Do you think deep in her heart that she thought there, she might be healed? Well, I think, sure. I mean, <clears throat> uh, I, I don't think she, uh, she counted on it. Uh, she used to say the reason I went to Lourdes is I wanted some help with my second novel, <laughs> and uh, and she got it. <laughs> she said, uh, but uh, of course, I mean, I, I, that was the great thing about Flannery. She was always open to what she believed was was the presence of God constantly, and she might, I might add the presence of the devil. <laughs> she, since that's one thing she learned in Savannah, she said, was the presence of the devil. <laughs> why again? Why Savannah? Well, it, it, she. What happens is she was trained by very good nuns, whom she's been uh, not always nice about, <laughs> but uh, they were the Sisters of Mercy, and uh, they'd always taught her to have a guardian angel. Well, one of the stories about her childhood is that she didn't like all that, and so in the afternoon sometimes she would go to her room, lock the door, and have a fist fight with her guardian angel, hoping to beat him up. <laughs> I beat her up. <laughs> so this, you know, the the that's the, a true story. The photographs of Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, you know, you see, it seems like you're seeing a fragile person, a uh, not a a person who would ever be boisterous or make a you know loud noise or loud laugh. You see, it's a demure kind of uh, person who's who would who would sort of sit back and not take the lead in conversation. Is that is that correct? Uh, oh, no, that's not correct at okay. all. Well, in later life, yes. I mean, that was another sort of thing if you visited there. But her, early on, she was... Uh, uh, she was adored by everybody. That was she was a child where there had been no children. This kind of thing, and that is on her father's uh, on her um, mother's side. There was a woman of immense wealth, uh, um, Mrs. Sims, uh, whose father uh, was John Flannery and founded the bank bank of uh, C N S Bank, Citizens Southern in Savannah. But it eventually became Bank of America and is now a major part of Bank of America. Well, uh, Ms. Sims looked after her and the family because the father was having a very difficult time getting over the shock of his life in World War One. I. I have a great deal about that in the book. And that's what the little girl remembered most of all in the very beginning. Uh, but uh, but also, she was uh, uh, she would do strange things. And when I was interviewing in Savannah, uh, there was a lady who was well into her 90s, and she said, well, I, don't, I can't remember everything about Flannery O'Connor, but I know that she really was a brat. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a chapter called uh, Flannery O'Connor, the Savannah Brat. <laughs> so she, she was someone who was pushing boundaries wherever she was, including, yeah, inc including at Georgia College in Milledgeville. Yeah. Well, she's pretty good there in terms of uh, opening up, not pushing boundaries, but opening up. And that's where her great cartoons are. They come from that experience there, and they are really wonderful uh, works and uh, the, from that period. But if, if you really want to know how it fits into uh, her writing, read the first paragraph of Revelation, which is a description of a doctor's office, and that's a cartoon. It's a marvelous cartoon, but it's in in words and shaped, and people who who are aficionados, that is, who really like Flannery O'Connor, uh, we'll remember that. And and that is something, again, uh, a deal about Flannery O'Connor. The people who like her really like her. The people who don't really like her have adapted and so forth. And I recommend always to anyone who's interested in Flannery O'Connor, read the letters first 
and let the letters... They're in the habit of being... That, that was being, yeah. won the National Book Award, what, in 76, I believe? Yeah, I think, yes. And edited yeah. by Sally Fitzgerald. But there were some other letters that came out in the Library of America edition. Oh, yeah. Oh, there, there, Flannery's letter writing was ubiquitous. I mean, it was everywhere. And that's one of the things that I go over in my, uh, my biography of Flannery O'Connor is how much uh, she had really, I think, a third vocation, and it was for friendship. First vocation was, I really think, a religious vocation. That is, her own what is in the what is in the prayer journal, uh, and then the second was for her writing, which is a tremendous vocation for her. And then the third was she stu- discovered she had this tremendous vocation for friends and friendship, and that's a big thing. And uh, uh, the people who were close to her stayed very close. To and in those days, letter writing was was oh, the yeah, way yeah, friendship yeah, carried on. Uh, yeah, and the uh, a very wonderful critic in uh, the Washington Post pointed out these are the uh, these this is Flannery O'Connor's habit of being is the last major collection of personal letters around. It's wow. over. Wow. It's now it's now gone. And uh, but again, I you know I, I raised the question of race and we haven't discussed it. So tell f- f- a person of her generation. Yeah. How, how would she have been regarded on the question of race? Well, to begin with, when she, as soon as she went to Iowa, one of her uh, friends, not a great friend, but a friend she had dinner with and, and, uh, and uh, was in her writing class and all that, uh, was uh, African-American, a, a young woman. And they were friends and got along very well together. She had friends at Yaddo who were African-Americans, including some famous novelists. If she had been a racist, she wouldn't have had those relationships. Oh, no, no, no. Flannery was not a racist. I mean, it, this is, it, it will come across sometimes in the stories, but you have to remember that the characters in her stories are based on characters that were there living on the farm uh, at, at Andalusia. And, and we're talking 1950s. 40s, 50s, and of course earlier, uh, and this you might as well have been in in uh, late plantation days. It hadn't changed. The big change would come, of course, in the 1960s as she was dying, and and at the very end. But uh, uh, um, very good to read about this <clears throat> is uh, Alice Walker's essay about her going with her mother to Andalusia and her response to Flannery O'Connor, and what she says there, I don't have the quotation in front of me, is that uh, Flannery O'Connor was uh, writing about a racist world, but she was not racist. Oh, that's, that's a nice summary. And we've got about three minutes left in this segment. Address the other question, and that is, those who are put off by the violence, by the sexuality, by things that they don't expect to find in a good Catholic novel. Well, it, it, as far as the violence is concerned, Flannery is very much like the Greek drama. <laughs> Most of the real horror is, is off stage. It's talked about, saying the good man is hard to find. They're all killed off stage. But you're dealing with people who were capable. I think Flannery, again, this is where one thing that's important about her is that she believed the presence of the devil, and the presence of the devil meant violence. Or it could mean violence, it could mean cruelty, it could mean, of course, destruction. But the devil is out to get you. <laughs> I was interviewed by a radio station that uh, they weren't quite getting a point I was making. <laughs> I can only imagine. And, and so I said, well, let me just give you a line from Prayer Journal. Uh, and this is a, 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 I'm working from memory here, but it's something like the beginning of the new year of 47. It, it's was written in 46 and 47, and it's one of the first ones. Um, uh, no man can be an atheist who does not know all things, period. Hmm. Only God is an atheist. The devil is the greatest believer, and he knows why. <laughs> wow. And that's at age 21 she's writing that? Yeah. It sounds like something out of... Uh, a Desert Father. Uh, Albert Camus or something like that. Yeah. Well, it sounds also, for me, more important, back to the Desert Fathers and pseudo-Makarios, uh, you know, <laughs> these people who are writing these uh, anomic, uh, sibylline statements. <laughs> and she, So she did have kind of a, nat- like you say, a natural religious vocation, which she expressed oh, she as a writer. Now, she, did, yeah. she wrote two novels and, what, how many short stories? Uh, she wrote two books of short stories, 
she wrote first a novel, or they're really, for me, novellas. They're short, yeah. Wise Blood, and then Book of Short Stories, A Good Man is Hard to Find, and it's 1955. And then her novel, The Violet Buried Away, came out, I think, in 60 or 61. And then when she died in 64, they were putting together a book of hers, which is uh, um, Everything That Rises Must Convert. It's a book of short stories, right? Book of short stories, but this, uh, I, what I find amazing, take that just the book of short stories, uh, everything that rises must converge, is the power of Flannery O'Connor over popular media. In the last episode of Lost, somebody is sitting outside of a train station waiting for somebody, a major, a major character, and he has in his hand, and the camera goes in and shows this, and he is reading Everything that rises must converge. I'm talking with (laughs) Professor Bill Sessions, who is soon to publish the authorized biography of Flannery O'Connor, the great Catholic writer from Georgia. You're listening to Church and Culture, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Church and Culture. This is D.L. Hudson. We're talking about the Catholic writer Flannery O'Connor, famous for novels like Wise Blood and short stories like A Good Man is Hard to Find. Bill, you knew Flannery well, and you you went on that trip to Lourdes. We've already talked about it several times. Tell us a little bit about that trip. Uh, well, it was an interesting trip because, uh, as I said, Flannery wanted to, Flannery did not want to go out, need to take that, make that clear. But on the other hand, her, their cousin, uh, Mrs. Sims, cousin Katie, had said, I want you to go. You know, you have lupus and this, and I will pay for everything. So, uh, she and her mother decided it would be the right thing to do, to go. And, uh, actually Regina kept a diary, which Flannery edited, and, and I have all of that. It's very interesting. But I myself that year had been awarded a Fulbright study grant in Freiburg, and I had wanted to go to Munich to study with Guardini in philosophy, but they moved me to... Uh, Romano Guardini, correct? Romano Guardini yes. uh, at, in uh, University of Munich. But they moved me to uh, University of Freiburg because I was to study with Heidegger. <laughs> wow. So, so I, had, I did hear Heidegger lecture twice and understood as much as... Uh, uh, my German would allow me, which was a great deal, actually. He lectured on Hölder. All this I told Flannery, so I'm not saying anything. I, and I wrote her letters about all this. And she actually, uh, I'm one of the few people, she saved a letter uh, from this spirit. She didn't save letters. She and, didn't. That's uh, interesting. But this was one she saved from that period. But anyway, so I took a train from Freiburg to go down to France, to southern France, and uh, I went to Lourdes and uh, met Sally Fitzgerald there, along with uh, Regina and, and Flannery. And I remember distinctly we were having lunch at, a, at the little hotel, which was right there, almost on the, the square. But uh, I was sitting by Flannery, and across from me was was Sally. And then across by her was Regina. And at one point, and we were all looking at the. French were there, of course, and eating and so forth. And Flannery leaned over to me and said, look at all of those Moriac faces. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, a lot of suffering going on there, right? Well, our, our, sort of, uh, our Moriac, you know, judgments and, and uh, uh, all of this, uh, people who were not particularly good people <laughs> and uh, glancing and making judgments and so forth. But, you know, it was just a, a light uh, response. So was she was she disappointed that nothing came out of her trip to Lourdes? No, 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 no. She, I don't think she she went with that even in mind that something would happen. Her descriptions are very funny, of course, as most people know them. And uh, she said the great mir- miracle at Lourdes is that nobody dies <laughs> because it's, she found it very unsanitary. The water you went in and you went out, and uh, a series of things like that. I was with them actually 
one afternoon, and I think you've seen some pictures that I took of Flannery, and we're all looking at the grotto, and I went up there afterwards to get water for them, and uh, my mother had sent me some drip-dry pants, which in the 1950s were the thing, <laughs> because you didn't have to wash them, and uh, or you washed them, but they, they would dry very quickly. So anyway, I had got all the water, holy water for her, and also for Caroline Gordon and a number of other people, and with these drip-dry trousers, and then came back. <laughs> and uh, I came again that night, and we were all together there in the procession in the, that as they would, were walking back and forth. And then Sally and I went out to the officials to set up the bath for Flannery, and uh, she used her French, I used my German, and we got it pretty well set up for her, I think. And that went well. I I was not there that day because I had to go back to Germany. But from there, they went over to stay with Robert and Sally Fitzgerald at Levanto, which is near Perugia, uh, and uh, near sorry, not near Perugia at all, near um, La Spezia. And uh, then they went on to Rome. And uh, I have a, a picture I think you've seen of Flannery with Pius the Twelfth. Yes, I've in, seen that in a group there. It's a marvelous. How did she get so close to Pius XII? What, well, what was the occasion? What was the occasion? They were on a uh, a pilgrimage with a group from Savannah, and the Savannah bishop was an archbishop simply because he was the papal nuncio to to Court of Saint James in London at a big position. So Mrs. Sims is a great contributor to the church. So he took particularly the, the archbishop did O'Hara took particular interest in this group. And so they moved Flannery right up front <laughs> behind uh, Pius and looking over his shoulder. <laughs> and it's a wonderful picture. It's a good picture of Pius XII and, uh, and then all the Monsignori and all of this. It's a church that you could say don't, no longer in one sense existed or whatever. I'm not sure about all that. But, but the point I want to make is Flannery is there looking over the Pope's shoulder, <laughs> and I think that's, that's uh, it seems to me, appropriate. The uh, Going back to the question of the grotesque in, in Flannery O'Connor, is there a simple way of explaining why Flannery included so much in the way of violence and so much, I mean, you, you actually have an act of sodomy, you have, uh, you have lots of adultery, you have a guy picking up an artificial leg from somebody he's seduced in the barn and so forth. A lot of readers are put off by that. But is there a simple way of explaining why? Uh, because she saw um, the possibilities of reality would all could always end up like that. It wasn't that life was like that. Remember, she's not writing realism. She's not writing naturalism, you know. Uh, and she certainly doesn't have to have a story about good people only. In fact, that doesn't interest her. It's how, how, how sinners come to do what they do, and we realize what they do. A main thing you have to realize in reading Flannery O'Connor is you have to realize you're reading parables, in a sense. In other words, you're, re- you're reading works that are not just full of symbols or even emblems of a kind, although they certainly are, like the wooden leg, for example. But what you're reading are kind of parables. This is what might happen if. And she greatly admired what she called the Jewish historical accuracy, the sense of what the Old Testament has in which the stories, Jesus' uh, parables, are, are the precision of the stories, the way the stories are told, the, the details you need and the details you do not need. And, uh, but they're not supposed to be necessarily happy stories. And uh, so, and in fact, that now, in fact, that has endeared her to a modern critical audience, and to the and, French, and to the French, <laughs> right, and and to the Europeans. But certainly, here's the other side of that: is uh, Flannery O'Connor is a modern American writer who is considered by most considered to be of a marvelous opening to to new realities that, of course, we're not Catholic or anything else. Remember, she's 60s, and she, Bruce Springsteen read uh, Wise Blood and was tremendously taken by that, and he writes about how she influenced him. Tommy Lee Jones uh, wrote a master's yes. at Harvard on her. 
and he has in his and his I think movies. is it Bono that also is an O'Connor? It, I don't yeah, know the about singer that. Bono. Could, could be, but uh, Conan O'Brien, and uh, there's just, there are a number of people who have been Billy Bob Thornton, the actor. Billy Bob Thornton, yes, very important. They really, they're moved by the violence. And because it seems true to their life and to people who live in the modern world and people who don't live necessarily in cloisters. What I liked particularly about the first Sharu edition of Prayer Journal were two things, actually. The picture of Flannery showed her a vigorous young woman in the snow and activity there at Iowa. And not the emaciated figure that was in the New Yorker when it excerpted the... Um, Excerpted. The yeah, they got a, They got a picture that was too too old. Late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the one I like there, and they did the right thing. And the second thing they did well, that may have been because Galassi is such a good poet. What they did was to to take the the prayers themselves and give a page to each one of them, or as well as they could give a page to them, and you set up kind of lyrics. And in that way, it also begins to the. Oh, reverberates in our heads, I don't care what your tradition is or where you come from, to the Hebrew Psalms uh, and the whole sense of of praise and of confusion and help and so forth. And the most important review for me has been so far in the New Republic uh, by the official review is being done by Paul Eli. But this was a note that, that uh, Wieseltaire, who's the great writer there at... Uh, uh, New Republic wrote about it. He compared it to something by Oprah Winfrey that he didn't like because the whole idea, uh, he thought at Harvard in her speech, was to say, you know, sort of every kid a winner. Now, that may not be true, but it's what he thought. So what Wieseltaire said was, Flannery O'Connor, he quoted from the journal, condemns herself, says, when can I get better? I must get better, uh, and so forth. And and he then, uh, Wieseltaire, writes what humility, what utility, and uses that as a model of what he felt uh, the should, should be said with those who are wanting to be better, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, Flannery O'Connor questions uh, just having good, good intentions. I might add the book got a very good review from the Oprah Winfrey re- Review, too, uh, and, and Wieseltier called the whole book Gorgeous. So <laughs> I was very happy. That's his word. Um, and, you know the, the the one the one angle that uh, I've I've noticed is that the redemption part in the stories and in the novel often are not seen in the character, but in some vis- vision that's uh, described by O'Connor of the sky or of the horizon or the trees, that the redeeming part is is displayed externally to the character. Is that, does that sound right to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, in other words, uh, 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 a, uh, a bit of scenery, uh, a forest, uh, a, a variety of things. Uh, and that's part of what she's saying about the presence of God. The presence of God is always there. But we don't necessarily be aware. We're not necessarily aware of it in that particular need at that point. But uh, uh, a good man is hard to find. That story is the one that is, in many ways, uh, quintessential and archetypical. It, it has a very uh, miserable ending. But on the other hand, it's uh, when you finish reading that, it's like a parable. You come out of it and say, "Wow." This could happen, you know. Well, there's a very good chance that our listeners may have read that story, since it's the one that's most often anthologized and read in high school and college. And and they will remember that it's about an escaped convict who uh, capped he and a couple of his fellow uh, criminals, capture a family that are off on some sort of vacation, and uh, they're carrying the not just the children, but the grandmother. Yeah, that's right. And and then uh, they, for some, it's never explained why they kill the family, and the and the last one standing is a grandmother. Uh, and there's this uh, 
interchange between the grandmother and this criminal called the misfit. And there is this moment just before he shoots her that she looks at him and says, you could have been my son. That he, And, and there's a lot of uh, interpretation about that. That, and Of course, the grandmother, through the story you learn, is, is not a very nice person. Uh, you know, is uh, not a person you would think of as kind or generous in any way. Uh, that she somehow has broken through to something in in the in the face of of imminent death. Is that is that well, right? That's absolutely, yeah, that's absolutely right. And then it ends up with uh, uh, the misfit knowing this, and the misfit uh, uh, when um, when he shoots her, and then uh, one of the Guys comes back. They've escaped from the pen, all of them, and it's uh, um, uh, Billy Joe. And Billy Joe goes hoo ha and sort of slides down the ditch where he is. And he he said that was uh, 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 that was uh, a lot of fun or something to that effect. And uh, and the the misfit says it's the last line. Billy Joe, there ain't no real pleasure in life. <laughs> and uh, I've always reverberating in my head is real presence. Uh, there's no real pleasure in life, and that is something that the that the misfit has been looking for. And that's kind of where we end. And uh, I might add, the effect of that story has led to the development of a band called the Misfit. <laughs> <laughs> well, why did? Why did? Do, do we know from the story why they killed the family one by one? Just to get rid of them because they didn't need any uh, witness. They didn't want any witness. So they had escaped. They actually yeah. bump into this uh, yeah. uh, family who it, are lost, right, because of the grandmother, right. correct? Right, right. And she wanted to go where there was an antebellum home, and you know, and uh, <clears throat> the the. Uh, but and they were on their way to Florida, which as you, that's a long trek from Middle Georgia, isn't it? Yeah, right. Well, I mean, Florida is for a long while was where you could go. Uh, for example, among other things, and you could get a divorce. <laughs> Nowhere else in the other states could you, that the immediate ones that are near there, that may not be quite true. But, uh, it was in South Carolina, I know that. Uh, but, uh, but the main thing is that, uh, it, it stood for a certain kind of freedom and, optimism and you could have pleasure and fun and you could have and then it became more like that of course with uh, Disney World and and the whole so what Flannery is hitting at here is the whole concept of uh, the that next to an uh, happiness and all of this grandmothers and all that there's always a misfit a in a sense a diabolical figure if you want except that the fact that he feels that he's wrong and looking he's not he's not He's not in the clutch of the devil totally because he's looking, and uh, and I think that makes a a big difference. But uh, <clears throat> you see, by discussing these uh, um, uh, deal, this is what I mean when I say they take on the nature of parables because they lead to reverberations in your mind, something you want to think about, and uh, and the uh, utter horror of life, not necessarily its utter joy. Although, as you know, Flannery believed very much in stalking joy. <laughs> now, why are you, why are you uh, entitling the uh, the biography "Stalking Joy"? Because that's what it's a it's a phrase she she used. Uh, she. Well, but uh, what does it mean? Um, writing a letter to Betty Hester, and Betty Hester said, "Well, you're not uh, you're not independent enough, and uh, you know you need to." move around and do more things and so forth, you know, loosen up, I guess that's what she was trying to say. <clears throat> but uh, she said, you're quite wrong. She said, uh, I, 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 I believe in uh, uh, opening up, and I don't, a quotation I'll have here in two seconds, but I don't have it right now. Uh, but the point is, uh, uh, you would be surprised uh, that I believe in, just a second, are you looking in your in the manuscript of your biography? Are you looking in the? Uh, I'm looking the habit, habit of being, yeah, yeah. The habit of being, being the letter really collected weird. letters. You're right, and it's exactly I know exactly where it is. It's, it's the beginning of 1957, and she's writing a letter to a, and uh, says, um, 
that uh, second here. Now, is this a letter uh, back in response to Betty Hester's letter? Uh, it, yes, it, it is. And Betty had been quite... Uh, and she's the one that eventually committed suicide, correct? She did, yeah, well, much later in life. But uh, um, but she... Uh, um, uh, so, yes, she says... Uh, uh, I wouldn't want to be on on the spot looking for something in a big book like the Hap of Being. <laughs> well, but it's worth looking for, <laughs> yes. and uh, and that's my point, uh, because it does explain exactly not only uh, for the biography what it is, but what what goes on. And uh, she says that the um, uh, I sent you the other day a piece. Uh, uh, on St. Thomas and Freud. The latter has the answer in it to what you call my struggle to submit, which is not struggle to submit, but a struggle to accept, and with passion. I mean possibly with joy. Picture me with my ground teeth stalking joy, fully armed, too, as it's a highly dangerous quest. Uh, In other words, if you're going out uh, stalking joy, that is, to find God, mm-hmm. Yes. then uh, you better be prepared. You better be fully armed. And then she goes on to that wonderful quotation, which we know in a number of ways, I'm sure you do. The other day I ran up on a wonderful quotation, quote, the, draggle, the dragon is at the side of the road watching those who pass. Take care lest he devour you. You're going to the father of souls but it is necessary to pass by the dragon. Wow. So if you're going to find joy, you have to stalk it. <laughs> Do you think Flannery found it? Oh, yeah. I don't have any doubt. <laughs> when, what makes you so certain? Oh, she was a very happy person, and uh, she liked her work. She suffered horribly uh, with the disease, but uh, at no point did she ever, in a sense, complain. And uh, uh, she never gave into it. She never let it beat her. No, because uh, should, if, if if she had this disease, God meant for her to have the disease, or she could think like that. Although that's very tricky to do because you can't keep thinking you know what God is going to do. <laughs> and uh, uh, the uh, as Claudel says, God writes straight with crooked lines. So you have to be sure that. Uh, what this means, but in her case, uh, I think she was very clear. She she really enjoyed writing, and she liked the characters. She liked her friends, and uh, but the main thing was, and then uh, looking for God, thinking about God. Uh, we had an. I remember sitting on the front porch one time. And this and is we, would be at Andalusia, the family at, farm at yeah, in Milledgeville. Yes, right where you had great big white chairs to roll screen porch, and then you'd have a. Um, hammock, and I remember I think I was in the hammock. I was in one of the. She was in the hammock. She was in the chairs, and we got started on. I said, "Well, uh, uh, what do you think about being a saint?" <laughs> and I mean, it's a kind of you know silly, yeah. silly Billy joke. And uh, her face sort of blanched, and it was clear she thought about it. <laughs> yes. In fact, a lot of people, I, th- I think you included, looking over her life in retrospect, see a much more determined uh, push towards sanctity or stalking joy than yeah. people knew before. We have a few minutes left, and uh, Bill Sessions, you know, they talk about this Catholic revival or renaissance of the 50s that Flannery was a part of. A lot of other writers, you've mentioned a few of them, were a part of that. I think it's true to say that only Flannery has survived as a admired, nationally respected writer from J.F. Powers, somewhat, uh, but certainly not Alan Tate or Caroline Gordon uh, or even even Robert Lowell. Why, why do you think uh, Flannery has survived? It, it's a good question because uh, uh, when she, I went to see, see yeah. Bob Bob Giroux in uh, when he was just before he died back. He was, That's that was Flannery's publisher. Flannery's publisher, right, and the one who discovered it. He said she grew, she grew, 
they were all very surprised that she had grown the way that she had in, in popularity and everything else. And obviously the prayer journal proves another thing. If, if two days ago the, a bookseller uh, called me and said, a man came in today and asked for 12 copies of the prayer journal. Buy them all at once. <laughs> and, uh, I, uh, you know, that's not uh, unusual with books, of course, but it, it's something... It means he was giving them to friends is what it means. Yeah, sure. Or he might have had a, a Sunday school class that he taught. The Flannery is very popular with all forms of Christianity, and I might add uh, uh, Judaism and also some of Islam, too. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's another part of her survival, is that although she was called a Catholic writer and she's seen as part of Southern writing tradition and so forth, she appeals, uh, she is in no way confined to a niche in, of her oh, admirers. She isn't. No, and I think the prayer journal proves that, uh, because if, if 300,000 people up to, to half a million are buying it, uh, they are clearly across across the field. And, of course, that was, for me, was Wieseltair's uh, review. Uh, you know, the New Republic is, is not... No, they're not, they're not disposed and, to be kind. And it's also a, a number of other areas. But, uh, but that was, in other words, if it could get through ideological barriers, without giving up any sense of the original identity. That was because of the writing, the the depth of the person speaking, etc. And that, that for me, was what hit me when I discovered that, oh, now over ten years ago, the uh, manuscript, because it was, uh, I, I was uh, that's, I had decided not to write the biography, I might add, I'd waited about two years, but after I read that, I knew that there was. I had to get into yeah. it and, and deal with it. I understand it, and uh, I want to thank you, Bill Sessions, sure. for being with with us on Church and Culture. Uh, there's so much more to talk about, and we will down the road. 